This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Welcome, it's Friday, it's a morning break, and this is Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. Welcome to Teachers Talk Radio, as I explore with my guest this week, Professor Lee Elliott Major, the Professor of Social Mobility at Exeter University, as I explore what schools are for after 40 years of teaching. What was I doing all that time? This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. So here we are, as I say, the good news is it's Friday. And today I'm going to be joined, hopefully shortly, by my guest, Professor Lee Elliott Major, who is the first professor, I think he's the only professor of social mobility in the UK, certainly maybe even in the world. And um, when he joins us, I'll give you more of an introduction to Lee. But uh, the concept of social mobility is one I want to explore because I've been now, I'm now retired and uh, looking back over 40 years of teaching, I want to understand what it was in some ways that I was doing all that time. And I want to explore, really, well, there were times, I guess, when I was teaching, and I wondered, and I guess we've all done this as, as teachers, we've wondered what exactly, not just what exactly we're doing, but were we doing more harm than good? There, now, I, I don't get me wrong, there are lots and lots of occasions during my teaching career, when I thought that I was, that then I had happy experiences, when I, when I, I felt that I was, um, oh, I think Lee, I think Lee might be about to come in. Let me see how I can do this. Not sure. Okay. Invite the speaker. No, can't quite see how to do that. So if Lee, if you're trying to get in, please try again. Um, so when I look back and I, I, I felt I'd inspired students and I'd achieved lots of things and I look back at my career and I've got lots and lots and lots of happy memories. But there are other occasions when students weren't enjoying school. And I think when they were uh, fearful or they felt that school was placing pressure on them. And I looked at the institution that I was part of and wondered what exactly it was I was doing. So over these Friday morning breaks, I want with you, uh, if you want to call in or you want to join me or you want to send a question, um, please call in. I want to explore what it is I was ex exactly doing. So last week, my guest was Roy Nevitt. And if you listened in, you'll hear listen, what a marvelous guest he was. And you'll also hear um, the uh, his his view that the power of drama, the the ability of drama teachers to explore and the uh, to 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 inspire students. And I guess that if I did look what school was for, I'd want it to be uh, about inspiration. I'd want it to be about the sorts of things Roy was talking about last week, the ability to take students from some sort of place to somewhere else. That idea, I think the idea of inspiration was was what, what I was exploring with Roy last week. And if you want to listen to that, you can listen to that again on uh, Spotify or any other uh, uh, channel where we are becoming what we what we come after this, we become a, um, uh, a podcast in effect. This week, though, I want to look at uh, going to try to get Lee to join us now. Hello, can you hear me? Hello, Lee. Hello. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Friday Break with me on Teachers Talk Radio. Um, I'll just give a quick introduction, by the way, to the to the listeners. This is Lee um, Elliot Major, who's 
I, I actually asked a moment ago, Lee, are you the only professor of social mobility in the world? We think so. And it's always funny because my teenage daughter, I always say this when I give lectures to teachers, when anyone says uh, I'm the leading thinker in social mobility, she says, Dad, that's because you're the only. Uh, <laughs> that's not quite true, but we, we think... We think it's the only yeah, professor of social mobility with that title. There's lots of other people that, you know, look into these issues, of course. But uh, but yeah, I, th I think we are. Uh, or I am, I should say. I'm, I'm talking in the royal way for some reason. Um, <laughs> I, 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 no, no, uh, I am. And I'm, I'm very proud and privileged to be uh, to be in that role. That's wonderful. And you're also, if I give my uh, listeners a, an idea of some of the things you've done, you're also uh, um, a co-author of a number of books, Social Mobility and Its Enemies, 2018, uh, What Works, 2019, and recently, What Do We Know and What Should We Do About Social Mobility? And in 2019, I think it was, you received an OBE for your work on social mobility. So clearly, I mean, social mobility is something that we as a society value, and it's something that I would, I would guess, I think, without, if I think about it at all, I think is a good thing. But I also imagine that someone like Liz Truss thinks that social mobility is a good thing. And we'd have very different views of what, what that might mean and how that might operate in society. I mean, what, what do you take social mobility to mean? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question because it is a term that gets banded around a lot. Um, yeah, the sort of principle, I guess, that guides my work is that your background shouldn't determine what you do in life, uh, irrespective of what that is. So, you know, it's not just the sort of narrative of, you know, rags to riches or, 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 or getting poor sort of pupils to become, you know, I was going to say government ministers, but maybe, maybe that's not the thing they, they aspire to now. But, you know, the idea of... Um, someone going from the bottom to the top is one of the sort of dominant narratives of social mobility, particularly in the in the media. I think my work really is more about how do we um, encourage all children to fulfill their potential. So that might mean they end up as teachers, you know, it might be, it might yep. be social workers. Um, of course, we don't value those jobs as much as we should do in society. and We don't pay them as well as we, we should do. Um, but, you know, you, the, the point here is that too often uh, children's backgrounds and, and really I'm talking about we might get into this disadvantaged backgrounds, whether it's in economic or, or, or cultural terms, too often uh, that stymies their, their development and, and, you know, means that they aren't um, uh, fulfilled in their potential um so 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 yeah that, that's the point here is is yeah. that your your background shouldn't determine it, sh it should be down to your sort of work bit of luck and you know um and all that stuff and at the moment in modern britain sadly uh it's probably becoming even more likely that your background will determine your your outcome certainly with what's yeah. happening right now that's interesting i'd love to talk about a little more about what's happening right now what with the removal of the limits on bankers bonuses and of course the higher rates of tax and we we'll get onto that in a sec but so i'm guessing i from what you've just said i can't anything but agree with it i mean it seems to me that that's a concept of social mobility that has something to do with social justice it's about that that is an injustice if someone with ability can't fulfill those can't fulfill their potential in a society whatever that potential might be whether it is to as you say become a government minister or whatever and it's not what you're saying is not a libertarian view of social mobility you know, the devil take the hindmost, the strongest should win. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the reasons I am conscious of this because my title is Professor of Social Mobility, and I think some people perceive that as that, that narrow sort of view of social mobility. Um, you know, there are lots of studies that I'm involved in that measure social mobility. That's one of the reasons why that title is there. So we literally do look at backgrounds of young people and then what they end up as adults you know, that's the study of social mobility but you're absolutely right really the thrust of my work is around what we might call social justice i think mm. and um you know one of the big studies we might come on to at the moment we're looking into is um the the the, 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 the pupils that end up without a grade four in english and maths at gcse for example you know mm. and my view is is that we're failing 
you know, could be 20, 30 percent of young people at the moment in the school system for various reasons. Um, and I would argue that everyone needs the sort of basics in uh, numeracy and literacy, whatever they go on to do. And, and in a way, that's more of an issue for me than mm. who gets to the top. Although I think that is important, you know, and, and again, we might get into the politics of it. You know, I, I worry generally, and this is not a political point, I really do worry about the quality uh, of the people that, that are making the decisions uh, which, <laughs> which shape all our lives, right? You know, and, and honestly, I'm not making a political point. I'm just saying that um, the, the political elites that we have um, are from a very small slice of society. And I think if you have a very shallow pool of talent, if you like, you know, if you're, if you're fishing from that very shallow pool, you're probably going to end up unstuck, you know. So, um, so it's important that we get people at the top who are representative of society. But I think the bigger issue for me is the fact that there are, is too many young people who leave school without what I would might call the basics. You know, we can debate what, what they are, but um, that's in a way the bigger issue. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone could have listened to the round of local radio interviews that Liz Truss gave yesterday and think that we had the finest mind in the country. I'm, I'm, I am making a political point there, but it would it was it was disappointing. But what you're saying essentially is that someone leaves school and they can't read or not, or they, they have they struggle with literacy. That's a disaster for their lives. Whereas not getting into Oxford might not be such a disaster. But certainly, certainly if school can't deliver ordinary levels of literacy and numeracy to significant numbers of students, then it's a failure of a really tremendous of a tragic proportions. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, one, one of the issues, though, with all this is you know, all our studies show that the home environment, uh, who parents are, what parents do, have profound impacts on young people's trajectories. And, you know, schools can do an awful lot. They are, can be transformative, teachers can be transformative, but in my view, they can't do it on their own. So either you have to have, you know, a high quality early year system, which we did sort of have 20 plus years ago. It's gone mm -hmm. now. Uh, so that children turn up to school when they, they do, you know, they can hold a fork and a knife. They can. They might have read a few books, you know. Mm -hmm. um, schools are playing catch up from day one, really. That's, that's the truth. And mm -hmm. then, you know, the home environment still has a profound impact all throughout schooling. So, I really worry about the narratives again around teachers being, um, in a way, the expectations being placed all on teachers. Now, you know, that's not to say teachers can't be transformative, but I think, you know, you've got to be fair to schools and that they are, I suppose, a necessary part of the solution, but they can't solve it all. Uh, yes. And um, we might get into this because I do a lot of work with schools around how increasingly, to be honest, with mm -hmm. schools are becoming what I would call almost hubs, community hubs, and they're sort of almost getting into that other space of, of helping children outside the classroom. But we might, might get in, into that, but, um, yes. but yeah. I mean, I've heard you talk of, I think I've come across something you said about the 80-20 the model, where 80% uh, of the influence on student success happens outside of school and 20% inside school. I mean, that's a very sobering thought for our, for our teacher audience. Yeah, I mean, yeah, remember that that, that is, so it, it's a bit statistical, that fact, you know, it, it, it's 80% it's of the variation in outcomes. What do we mean? So if you look at two pupils in a, in a classroom, um, you know, school is, if you, if you took away the teacher in schooling, that would, that would have, you know, a big influence on, on every child. But if you look at the differences in outcomes between two pupils, then 80% of that difference, if you like, is down to outside school factors or well, it's about 50 to 80. It depends what study you use, but a, a big chunk. So I, th I think schools sort of lift the lives of many children, but it's very hard, I think, to narrow those gaps. And I do worry a lot about the rhetoric around, you know, we're going to narrow gaps. I think that's almost impossible unless you're doing something outside the classroom as well as inside the classroom. You know, um, my view is that, you know, we could strive to have mm. excellent teaching in the classroom, 
But unless you're doing something to enable those children to be ready to learn once before they get there, it's going to be very hard for them to keep up with others in the classroom. So, so it's about the differences, I suppose, in, in outcomes. And um, one of the things that really frustrates me is, you know, you get schools that are um, judged as outstanding by Ofsted, although, of course, it's all, you know, the new framework is, is making that even harder in some ways, I think, um, being outstanding. But, but if you look at some of those outstanding schools, the gap, the gap in outcomes between disadvantaged and non-disadvantaged pupils is still extremely stark. And I, and I would argue, is a school outstanding if that's still the case? I mean, that's a debate you could have. You know, I, I would argue that maybe you need to be narrowing that gap to some extent if you're, if you're an outstanding school. But, but it's hard because of these outside school factors. And you, I think you referred a little bit there to, before that, to the decline in things like Sure Start and uh, preschool preparation that you would think would be one of the most, one of the higher, highest priorities. And I know that Sure Start hubs and Sure Start centres have been closing, not opening, especially during the periods of austerity. So that, that, that it, and yet, and yet it seems to be so sensible that students should arrive school, arrive in school ready to, ready to, you know, with, with, ready to learn really. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the tragedies of modern times. I really do, you know, um, under the new Labour government, which I can remember still. Um, yes. Uh, you know, I remember speaking at international conferences where people were in awe of what we were doing in the UK uh, in terms of establishing that, that early year support. There were issues with it, John, you know, that, 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 you know and I think we could have improved it, no doubt. Um, but I think we lost momentum on that. And it, it really it saddens me because it, it makes you realise that really education should be a long term issue. There, there almost should be a sort of external you know, agency, a government agency that monitors overseas education, mm -hmm. a bit like sort of Bank of England for finance, which is having to do a lot of work at the moment, of course. Um, but, you know, um, it makes you realise that the, 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 the sort of trials and tribulations of politics should be outside of education. It's so important because it's our future. It's our future generations. And, um, you know, maybe may easier said in, in hindsight a little bit. But, you know, I, I, I think it is a tragedy that we lost uh, quality early year support, um, it, probably in the austerity decade. You know, that's when it probably got lost. There are still some centres out there, but it's just not is universal we, we don't have the high quality teachers that we should have in early years um that's because we don't pay them enough mm. um uh, so you know what, what's been interesting to me over the last three or four years where we've been we had the pandemic um you know when people when people sort of say to me Lee, it's a bit idealistic you're saying we should have an early years program because it costs you know it costs billions of pounds to to set up but yeah, we, we've had discussions, haven't we, about billions of pounds being invested in, for example, the furlough scheme during the pandemic. Yes. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not an economist, but, you know, I don't, it doesn't seem to me that big a jump to say, well, maybe if we tax, sorry, I know this is not in, in um, current vogue at the moment, but maybe we could tax the wealthy a little bit more, you know, to, yes. to, to then use some of that money uh, to support the early years. That is, for yes, me, yeah. any, you know, a no-brainer. And yet, we're, we're a million miles away from that. It is curious the way we went through those years of austerity, and now we do seem to have discovered the magic money tree in some ways. Uh, money can be found with quite colossal proportions uh, for uh, for short for, for things when they're when they're absolutely necessary. And yet, and yet, that is outstandingly necessary. You did mention if there was a government agency that looked at the rest of the world. Are there countries doing this better? I mean, are there countries that are sending students to school better prepared and taking this more seriously than us? Absolutely. Um, you know, I do sessions with, with schools in Norway and Finland and these sorts of countries. They're culturally very different. You know, they, these are countries where, you know, if you're a banker or a doctor, you'll be still earning a lot more than, a, say, a cleaner or a teacher. But it, the differences won't be won't be as big, right? They just won't be as big. So you always have to think about inequality, right? In these these contexts, mm. 
But also what you find in those countries is, is a cultural difference. One, teachers are incredibly respected, you know, and they often will be doing master's degrees at university. They will be um, uh, probably paid more in, in relative terms. Um, but, all, but also it's really interesting. I think we, we've bought in in the UK to the very individualistic notion of success. And again, this comes back down to sort of social that's the American dream version. You know, anyone can make it if they work hard enough. But it's quite an individualistic notion of success. Whereas if you go to the Scandinavian countries, and not, not just Scandinavian, actually, I think even Germany, for example, where I discuss with colleagues there the way that they promote people and success, it's a more collective vision. You know, it's, it's more valuing people who give back to others. I know it sounds very idealistic in, in our world, in, in the UK, um, but... It's really embedded in our different cultures. And it's only when you go to those countries that you sort of, you realise just how individualistic we have become. And, and I think that that is the sort of the thing that, um, that you really notice. The, the iro irony of it all this is um, that when you look at people's lives, and I would say mine included, you know, I'm, I'm from a relatively working class background age 15, lived on my own, um, you know, if you looked at me, then you'd probably think not much of a chance, I sort of dropped out of school, not much of a chance of progressing uh, in life, but it was really people around me that helped. If you look back on it, it was a teacher who saw something in me, it was my uncle, bless him, who's now no longer with us, who gave me a bit of money to go to university. Um, it was people that helped me, you know, and I think too often, we have this notion that you you, you meet you know, these people that are super rich often who 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 sort of almost forget all the all the help they have um, and and it's yes. all, all all down to them it's all down to them you know it was um, it was a period of time when you were working on the bins wasn't there that's very true very true <laughs> and um, so so I'm I'm very um, I'm been very open about my life in recent years yeah. in, in, because it. I think it's really important to, well, particularly with students and pupils when I do my talks, because I sort of say, look, it reopens up an interesting discussion, right? Because you say, look, I went from bin man to chief exec of the Sutton Trust to professor. Mm -hmm. And that is, again, it's a very sort of, um, uh, that, that similar narrative, you know, he's gone from the bottom to top. But then what, what's really interesting with the pupils and students, I said, well, actually, to be honest, I quite enjoyed being a bin man. And I, and I, and yeah, I honestly did. I, and, and I, I was doing a service, you know, um, and I actually cleaned streets on weekends. And I always remember this, this young lad who uh, was at school with me bumped into me. And, um, and I was, to be honest, at that point, I was going to university. I knew I was going, I'd applied. This was during the summer. And he said, oh, I didn't realize you were, you know, street cleaner. And I, and I didn't tell him, you know, purposely, I didn't tell him. That I um, that I was going to university, so it's really important. Again, it comes back to that issue, I think, of valuing people for the services they do. And, and you know, I think professors do a good job in many ways, but so do cleaners. You know, and so we have to be very careful how we judge uh, people. And 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 often, uh, certainly on TV and in the media. I mean, I've become a, win a slightly whingy old man with all this stuff. You. Um, <laughs> Uh, X Factor, um, the, is it The Apprentice, all these shows, all these shows are all about who's the winner, everyone else is, is assumed as the loser, uh, it's, it's all about individual gain in my, in my eyes, even Come Dancing and all this sort of stuff, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd love a show, I'd love a show where it's all about, and I know this is probably uh, very idealistic, but a show where, you know, who's done the best in terms of giving back to other people you know wouldn't that be nice to have a Absolutely, show about that <laughs> of course yes i mean it, it's interesting our society is so saturated by the language of of um competition and and sort of libertarian market forces i mean schools themselves have, are, are encouraged to compete against each other i've talked about that in a previous show but the i i can remember when our school when a school, a school i taught at in the past adopted a kind of a mantra they put it above the doorways and one of those was opportunity and the other one was independence and i thought well the opportunity and independence are good things but so are cooperation and so is um caring and that could be the that could be the strap line of our school and, and i thought uh, the underlying message of so much of our society is libertarian again it's it's you can succeed mm. uh, it, and, it, and it comes as you say it comes as through quite 
ordinary areas quite everyday things like advertising and um and reality television and so on yeah no, it's absolutely everywhere yeah now you've mentioned i think that when uh, we just gone through it we were going through extraordinary every, every every headline seems that there's a new thing we're going through but when we were going through covid lots of people say of of things like a a pandemic it, well, disease and illnesses recognize uh, no class. You know, you don't know how rich you are or poor you are. It's the great leveler. And it's not the great leveler, I think you've said, that, uh, that what COVID did was expose our society's inequalities. Yeah, I got really frustrated with all that, um, all that nonsense about, you know, it being the great leveler. Yeah, what we know, and, and by the way, you know, I've been on the BBC many times during the pandemic with... A, a health sort of expert and, and some interesting discussions at the time. Remember when we didn't know what was really hitting us at the time, but this really interesting debate about do you close schools because of the health um, impacts of the, yeah. of the virus versus the sort of educational damage you would get. And I was always on there saying, look, you know, we've got to be careful about the educational damage. Um, it was hard to argue that point when we, we were all very scared, remember about, about what was happening. But what's really, you know, become more and more, I think, um, uh, clear uh, from my research and others is that actually, in many ways, the damage has been educational, actually, in terms of the pandemic. So, mm. um, you know, we've we've estimated sort of learning loss. And again, of course, children were learning. Everyone learns all the time. But in terms of sort of formal learning, if you like. We've, we've done some estimates on on how much learning was lost during that, how much school was lost during that, uh, those times. Uh, and it's significant. It's unprecedented. You know, it's and, it, and it, unfortunately, it did uh, impact on the poorest pupils in, in particular. Um, and, and by the way, John, I mean, you, the thing that I'm, I'm increasingly doing lectures for, for trainee teachers and early careers teachers across the country and I do a lecture on disadvantage and one of the things we talk about is hidden poverty so it, it's you know quite right that you look at free school meals those children on free school meals mm. but uh, there's a much wider group actually of children particularly in the cost of living crisis who are facing hardship and poverty so we talk about disadvantage in different ways you know cultural economic um and it's really important for teachers to understand that. There's, and at the moment, there's no, nothing in the framework for teacher training that goes into this. So I've, my lectures have become a sort of, you know, an almost essential, you know, training for disadvantage. We, and we talk about how how to think of, of helping poor people in particular in, in, in the classroom. That's just an aside, because I think we, we, want, we need more debates about what, what disadvantage yeah. is. But what we know during the pandemic is that certainly uh, those from disadvantaged backgrounds missed for schooling and when they weren't at school uh, they didn't have the study space they didn't have the internet um, mm. they didn't you know and again you've got to be careful with stereotypes here and these all our, our averages and there's people that button the trend but on average those children lost more at home and, and at school um, during during those those terrible times we had um, so so you know we're estimating that social mobility will fall however you define it for the current generation unless we do something really quite radical in, in many ways and might come on to some things that the government is trying to do and what we're trying to do yeah. um, but the thing i would say to you is uh, the thing that really worries me at the moment is the is the is the persistent absence of, of a significant minority who often are the poorest children yeah. who just haven't been returning to school you know and we're just we're currently doing some analysis of what happened last year just looking at all the data and and the first few weeks of this term and, and all the senior leaders in schools that I, I do sessions with they're all worried about this you know if you're not in school you, 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 know, you know I can talk to you about all the techniques and trashes within school for poor people but if you're not in school you're gonna you're gonna fall further behind no doubt about that yeah, yeah. Um, and that I think is I would call it almost a natural crisis at the moment and, and it really frustrates me because a lot of the current government priorities, you know, grammar schools have been mentioned, um, other things, mm. Re really, you know, what we want is a target focus on disadvantage and, and just ensuring that schools uh, can help those children that are most in need. That, that to me is, should be the main priority right now. Yeah. 
I mean, I was I was still teaching. I'm retired now, but I was still teaching at the into the beginning of the lockdown. And we started my school started teaching uh, online and the students who showed up online to my online lessons were the students I would expect to show up to every class and the students who I couldn't get to get near a computer. And it was lots of it was practical reasons. There were kids, there were there were younger children coming in the room. There were there were they couldn't have access to the computer at home. And some of it was just simply that they were at home and therefore they were choosing not to join in the school, join into the lessons. And, and it was predictable. It was highly predictable. And, uh, you know, the, the, the students who were motivated were motivated in to to, uh, to 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 sign on. And those that weren't weren't. And it was I could see the disparity there. The other thing that happened during that that period was the, al the what we would call the algorithm scandal mm. and the algorithm scandal where where this government said, OK, let's um, use an algorithm to decide how we hand out exam results. And there was a great reaction to that because it was seen to be demonstrably unfair. And mm. I remember thinking at the time, but of course, exams are demonstrably un unfair. There is always a middle class advantage in the exam system we have and a middle class advantage in schools that we've got. It's just that now, essentially, it's been exposed, a bit like a tide going out and you see what's under the water. There's, mm. you, you can kind of see the unfairness. But the damage, damage that's been done by COVID and the students, the particularly most vulnerable students, of what, what should we be doing right now? What 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 is the way back? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I, I agree with you. You know, in my lectures, I, I do. I, I have this image of an unequal playing field. It's a playing field at an acute angle, and it's sort of it, it's it's. I've used it a lot because it's a sort of symbol for me of the unlevel playing field of life that we have in this country. Yes. And um, you know, we we don't. And again, we could have a whole hour of what we mean by fairness, but you're absolutely right. The, the system is unfair in many ways. And, and um, you know, one thing before I just go into some of the thing projects that I'm doing at the moment with schools right. and universities, you know, I would say we do need a sort of, I suppose, a bigger national debate about how we assess children more generally. So um, I think we have a system that's, I know it sounds odd for a, a professor who works with teachers, but yeah, it's, it's too academic, the system. It's, it, you know, we, we, we measure children on a very narrow uh, analytical sort of memorization ability. And, and it's, you know, it's a skill, it's very important, um, but I don't think we do enough to measure other attributes, talents, creative, mm -hmm. uh, practical, vocational. Now, how you do that is always difficult, right? But I do think, uh, you know, that, that huge uh, number of children that leave school without basic maths and English. My hunch with that, and we're still looking into that as one of our research projects and we're talking to government about it. My hunch is that they probably are put off school from quite an early age, partly because they're just not as academic, I'll put it in inverted commas, academic as others. They mm. probably have other talents in my view. I think every my view is that everyone does have some talent. I, I think it's, you know, um, it might be different, but it's there. And I, so, so I just think we probably need a debate about, you know, we've had it in the past, um, but I think we need to have it again about curriculum, about assessment is, do, do we, do we nurture all the talents in the classroom? Uh, anyway, I, I put that to one side, but yeah, but saying that what, in terms of the current system at the moment, what we're doing. Um, so one thing, there's a couple of projects that I think are really interesting um, that might, might interest your listeners. I mean, one is, um community hubs schools as community hubs and this is where we're testing a model that um that has been really really in, in, sort of happened in, in in feltham in west london reach academy it's quite an interesting school. it's an all through school so from really from sort of four all the way all the way up it's new you know it's only it's only been around for 10 years i could still call that new um but what they're doing, which is really interesting, is really talking to their community in a in a much deeper way, I guess, than a school might normally do. So most schools know their communities to some extent. Uh, but what Reach Feltham have done, which is really interesting, is done a sort of what they call a deep listening exercise. They've gone out, they've really tried to understand their community. It's quite a working class sort of area, you call it. Um, and and what they've done is they try to help where needed, where there isn't perhaps the sort of local social or community services providing things, they might step in, you know, so they often, I think they do parenting classes, for example, for children before they get to school. So it's, it's almost 
filling the gaps where yeah in society uh, where you can now yeah I, I stress that this is a real balancing act right uh, for schools because you're, you're of course as you'll know yeah. you probably don't have enough time to, to develop as professionals within the classroom which is another thing we could talk about you know i don't think teachers are given enough time to develop as classroom practitioners um but in a way in a sense i'm sort of trying we're, we're, we're exploring whether there is a practical, doable model where schools can do a little bit in terms of getting children school ready so they turn up to school and, uh, and they're not mm. way behind already. Maybe we're talking about sort of, feed at the moment, it, it's about feeding, you know, it's about the, the basic entitlements of life increasingly. But, you know, is there a few things you can do, often with in conjunction with other community or, 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 or local government services, to, to, to do that, get outside the classroom. And, and I think for me, it's, it, it, if you're gonna, you know, that 80, 20% uh, variation we talked about earlier, if you're gonna make really things transparent, you have to almost have that magic mix of addressing outside factors as well as inside school factors. And if you can somehow manage that, uh, I, I think it can be, I think it literally can be magic. I, if you if you have an aspirational community outside your school gates and you have excellent teachers, I think you can do great things, amazing things. The problem is, um, is schools lack the resources often to, to, to be able to fulfill that, those sort of, those sort of expectations. So what we're doing, what we're doing, I'll let you come back, just what we're doing at the moment is we're trialing that model uh, across the country in the southwest uh, but also in the north you know could could other schools take on this sort of model so that's one thing we're doing but i'll be very interested in your your sort of uh, thoughts on that well i mean that that uh, taking that sort of holistic view of the student and their life and so on i mean i i remember reading a piece of research some years ago the very simple idea that children in fr in buggies small children in buggies that faced their parents got had a language advantage since they could look at their parents talking as their mothers pushed them around in their pushchair and it's a very simple little practical thing but i do i sometimes worry that isn't there a danger like i probably i'm sure i've been accused of this of trying to impose on people a kind of middle class sense of what is progress mm. in other words you should be reading books and you should be reading these books you should be speaking to your children and give, you know uh, there's a playing with them in creatively and doing art projects in the afternoon that would be great but it's a there's a I think teachers are sensitive to feeling that they are mm. uh, being patronising to parents. Yeah, you know, I, I see this sensitivity all the time when I do work with schools. I, I've, I've become increasingly sort of uh, of the view that actually there are some basics in life that all children need, and that's almost irrespective of class. We call it middle class, and I, I know middle, middle class often do these things we're talking about. I think you have to do it in a non-judgmental way, uh, and I think you have to respect people uh, and their lives. And, and, and you know, I always remember that, you know, to kill a mockingbird, you, know, you, you don't know someone until you've lived inside their skin. You know, it's so true. You've got to be really careful about your presumptions. But at the same time, I think there is a core of things that all children should do, you know, and I don't think we should be ashamed of that. And we shouldn't feel like we're you know, imposing our, our middle-class values on, on us. I don't think they are middle-class. I think that's almost been, you know, taken as middle-class. And in fact, I would say reading with your children, sitting down, asking questions, uh, advocating for your child in school, asking why they, I don't know, might have been put in a different class, um, helping them to, to think about what they want to do after school. All these things that the middle classes do, and to be honest, what really uh, is noticeable in the last few decades is the middle class, and I, of course, I am now middle class. You know, I've had children. I do all these things. We we have upped our game. You know, if you look at levels of private tutoring, they have boomed in the last few decades. Now, that's mainly it's not all, but it's mainly a middle class affair. So I feel like it's a, almost we're almost a bit hypocritical. We're saying, OK, we've got this this race we've invented. Right. And we've got these exams that are, that are measuring a certain type of ability, not all talents. But we're going to so we're going to tell you what we're going to, uh, you know, measure this race on. And also, by the way, we're going to make this race really unequal so that we do we do all the things that enable our children to get on it. And, and then then we're going to feel a bit guilty about telling you 
what the rules of the game are. You know, do you know what I mean? Now, I, I, you know, <laughs> yes. uh, so I feel I feel more strongly about this as I get older, and and I know people are very sensitive to this. You know, in terms of imposing middle class values, mm-hmm. but. Uh, I would urge you, and I, I, w- I want to write more about this because I, I really think teachers shouldn't feel that way as long as it's you know a defined core of things, and as long as you're doing it in my view in a non-judgmental way, and you're and, and often teachers are very uh, sensitive to that. You know, um, you know a lot of them now do trauma-informed sort of practice. Um, you know, so. so I totally don't know where you're coming from, John, on this, but I, I just think we should be less worried by that because if we don't do it, you know, the gaps are just going to get bigger and bigger. Um, so I think it can be done. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I um, from my own experience with my own children, they, were, uh, they you know, completely adopted the idea that they should read early to try to send them to school so they could be reading before they went to school and give them the, what I, what are the benefits of middle again my 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 grandfather was a laborer my father was a factory worker an engineer and i went to and i went to university my pet my still and i was i was absolutely determined that my children should go to university but when they were if they'd been in year say 10 or 8 or sometime and they come home from school and they said today we had a careers advisor who said um that we should follow a vocational route and that we should learn some skills to become say interior designers I'd have thought, well, interior design is a very good good thing, but I would have been slightly disappointed and it would have been a, possibly a middle class prejudice. I'm not sure. I'd have been slightly disappointed because I'd have wanted them to pursue history and philosophy, which they did. And one did classics, one did politics. And I, I have an inbuilt kind of bias towards broad philosophical ideas based learning and not vocational learning. Mm. And I can't escape that, really. I would have, I would have been moderately disappointed and yet i know that you know one what society must have interior decorators but i would have i would have thought interior decorators are designing curtains and cushions whereas reading poetry is about the human condition and i i can't get away from that feeling of absolute absolute sense of the value of some learning yeah yeah no i i i suffer the same biases but you know uh, you've got to be careful as a parent haven't you i mean you know, my son's just gone to Leeds University. We just dropped him off last week. You know, we had that sort of tearful journey back. You know, the, the, the house is feeling a little bit more empty now. And and he's doing art and design right now. You know, I, I've always was, was probably more academic. My daughter is probably more. But I'm, you know, I'm really excited for my son, Jack, because I think he's going to pursue what he wants to do at the moment, you know, and, and, and like all middle class parents, we'll probably be there with the safety net ready you know, yeah. if anything does go wrong. In many ways, it's that often with middle classes, I think, is the fact that we we can come in with our safety nets. And if it doesn't quite work for our children, we can help them. We can introduce them to other people we know in our networks. So we do all this stuff. And I'm not, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do. I, I don't think you could stop, even if you wanted to, parents doing that. I think that's, that's natural. But where the hypocrisy comes in for me, is that we don't make those other that those rules or those tactics or those things we do explicit to those people that don't have those um, backgrounds. And now, in many ways, I, I guess you could say, well, actually, if you're from a work class, like, you could take or leave those things. But I still think we should make it absolutely explicit, and we should tell all the parents what other parents are doing in the school. You know, I, I, you know, I've been a governor of trustee. I've been around schools for decades now. Now. Some of those difficult parents are the middle class parents, I can tell you, John, you know, and, and mm. these are parents being really quite individualistic often in their wants, their demands, um, you know, and, and actually, you know, I would argue. And again, people might push back on this, but I would argue for what I would call an equity based approach in schools. I would spend more time and devote more resources to those from more disadvantaged backgrounds than those from middle class backgrounds mm. uh, the issue is that all teachers know that you know one you've got their parents quite strongly advocating and also you probably share lots in common with some of these parents so you naturally probably gravitate to those parents and and in the classroom it's usually those people's that the ones again these are averages but that, that are responding to your teaching so you you're yeah you know, teachers are humans you know heaven forbid yes, they are humans so, so, so you tend to, and I have this when I do my sessions. Let you, know, I really try hard to sort of 
focus on those students who aren't perhaps uh, affirming what I'm doing. You know, it's, when you're teaching or lecturing, it, it's like a performance and you're, you're exposing your soul to some degree. And so when you have a young person saying, yes, I totally understand that. And, and they're giving you really good feedback. You're like, yes, I love that. I'm going to, you know, you, you, you're, you're, you're inevitably attracted to, to, to responding to those, those people's more than others. And yet it's probably the, what some people have called the hidden learners in the classroom or the lecture theatre that you probably want to focus on, on more. Absolutely. I mean, I, there was this morning, there was on uh, thinking about this, this interview and this programme, and there was a, something on the Today programme where a student who'd been during lockdown, they'd been, reason, they'd been happy at school, but they were autistic, mildly autistic, autistic. And they had become a school refuser during lockdown because they'd become so anxious about school and they couldn't get back into school. And at the very end of the interview, this young girl said, well, she said, I want to get back to school, she said. And she didn't say, I want to get back to school because I'm afraid that I'm losing out on learning. What she said was, I want to get back to school because I want to have fun. Mm. And I thought, well, yes, of course. That, that should be, the, the, going back to what you said earlier about the purpose of school being for creativity, for, mm. for enjoyment and measuring things other than um, the, the, the things that can be measured through data. Mm. Uh, another thing I've, I know that you've talked about is the decline in social mobility, particularly since the Second World War, and, and the possibility that we're entering a period of greater, um, greater, uh, possibly even a social, di di we're, 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 we're of downward mobility. Mm. Uh, is, that, is that something that's, that's over the horizon, for the, particularly as we enter these troubled times? Yeah, so, so I, I hate to be the sort of the doomsayer on all these things, but, you know, it, it, these are sort of inevitable consequences of the capitalist system we, we exist in. You know, I, I, put it, I put it in those profound terms, you know. Yeah. Um, so post-war, you know, what, what we witnessed, what some sociologists would call was, was the sort of boom years, you know, the golden years of social mobility, and that's where we had the expansion of universities, of um, hospitals, you know, the welfare state. Mm -hmm. um, and that created extra opportunities. Now, you've got to remember, you know, post-war, we had a lot of people who obviously died in the war. So there was a need for people. It would literally, you know, numbers and we needed more people. So, so there, there were opportunities. Um, now, what's interesting is that at the very top, what we call sort of in, in, in the field, more, more like relative social media, who is in the very high echelons, that didn't really change at all, to be frank. You know, that, 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 that doesn't change. You know, if you look at Macmillan's cabinet, if you look at the proportion of privately educated people in, in Macmillan's cabinet, it's pretty similar to Thatcher's cabinet in 77. It's not that dissimilar to... Uh, the current cabinet you know that that, that doesn't change much um so there's not much, so, down, there's not much down mobility yeah. for millionaires once you once you're rich yeah. you just to stay rich yeah uh, but um what what we're finding now so that so that there was extra opportunities for people to become doctors uh teachers nurses these sort of jobs and and that helped create a middle class you know a, a much bigger middle class the problem now is, is that we don't have any more room at the top. So because people like myself have moved from working class to middle class, mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they just aren't, you know, unless the economy is growing, unless society is growing, those positions get taken up. So, so people like me, you know, we're going to hold on to our positions, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. so, so, so there's less, less um, uh, room at the top, but also, uh, because um, what, what we're experiencing, this the current generations uh, is unprecedented. What they're experiencing is lower average earnings than their parents' generation. So every generation earns slightly more on average. Now, mm. inequality, of course, has, has, has increased as well. So the average, of course, hides the, the increasing inequalities. But on average, uh, this generation will earn less in real terms. So. So that means you're less likely to be able to buy a house, get on the housing ladder. You're you're less likely to basically live a decent life, you know, than than you were a generation ago. So that's so that. And when we talk about downward mobility, that's what we're talking about there. We're talking about really um, being downward in the sense that you're doing less well than your parents did, um, or, or, you know. So 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 that is a real issue for this generation. Now that was all before. 
the pandemic hits, the global recession in 2007 hits. Um, saying all this, John, there are people that are still mobile, you know, and, and you know, there are people that, that, that do, um, do, do do it. So, so I don't want to be too, you know, pessimistic, but, you know, on average, it's harder. It's harder for people. And I think over the next decade, um, it's going to be really tough for young people. Uh, and I think radically about it, you know, it, it's really interesting, isn't it? Again, coming back to the current politics, you know, the current ideological sort of um, politics around, you know, cutting taxes for the mm. highest earners. I mean, that's quite radical. I would say let's be more radical with uh, how we address those from poorer backgrounds. So I would look, for example, certainly things like um, uh, limiting rent so that it can't go over a certain, so the big cities like London, you know, the, you know, for young people, it's almost impossible now to, to pay the rent. I, I would have uh, fixed rents. I would even entertain uh, having a limit on salary, right? So this is the opposite of what the current regime is. You know, one of my um, all-time uh, political heroes was President uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who who in, in America, you know, the Great Depression basically took America from the Depression to the great economy that fueled America in those you know, later years. Sadly, it's not, not so much the case now. But, but, you know, the things that he did were amazing. You know, he, there were schemes where, of course, they got unemployed people in the, in the, in the, in the New Deal to, to go and work on collective projects, you know. Um, uh, they also gave grants to all those military that came back after uh, after World War II, free higher education. Yeah. I'm convinced that those um, collective, bold, um, uh, you know, decisions made by a politician in the free market world of, of America, you know, mm -hmm. those were the things that made a difference. Now, of course, coming back to what I was saying earlier, I think that was a long-term vision. You know, it, it, it took decades for that, that sort of vision in a way to be fulfilled. I think we need to be more radical over the next decade, you know, around how we um, improve opportunities for young people. I, th I actually believe it's doable, but I just think you've got to think uh, outside outside the box a little bit. Yeah, and I th uh, if you look back at those post-war years when social mobility was greater in this country and people like my father left the army and left a building site to become a, an engineer, they, there was also an expanding welfare state. That was also the period of time when government was intervening in the economy and creating an expanded, uh, expanded opportunities for all sorts of people uh, in world in a world they wouldn't have necessarily been there in the nineteen thirties. So that that it, I remember a few years ago, a chap came to a school where I was teaching, and he was an economist, and he said to my students, they were all A level students, A level economics, A level history, A level politics, those sort of things, A level business studies, and he said, "Oh, he said the future is very bright for you." He said. He said, you are, the, you are the everywhere people. You won't think of this country as your own particularly. You'll, you'll travel around capitals of the world. You'll, you'll, he painted a very, I think he forgot he was at a state school. And, um, but, he, but nonetheless, he said, you get to university, you've got the golden ticket. And he said, well, he said, but on the other hand, if you leave school without skills, really, there's, no, there's going to be a real problem for you. And I thought, well, he's describing a world where um, there are declining opportunities for being able to live a decent life without with simply on the on being able to work hard uh, so we we it's almost as if we've created a world of people cycling around delivering pizzas uh, and other people enjoying a much better life because they've entered that world of of the professions but there i also think you're saying that there's a there's a greater vulnerability even even in that world my, my own children can't afford to wouldn't couldn't afford, <laughs> the idea of them buying property in london is 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 way, is way ahead of them yeah, I mean, I, I think, John, we've, we've got to a point now where capitalism is failing, not just for the poor, which I think it is. I think it's failing for the middle classes yeah. increasingly as well. You know, and I'm exactly in the same boat as you. You know, my my children, I can't see that if, if they move to London, you know, there's no way they're going to afford uh, to buy a house in many parts of the country. So I, you know, some people in my field, you know, have predicted that there will be a sort of social revolt, mm -hmm. or that there will be at some point. This was this was predicted years ago. I think it's twenty thirty four or twenty two. Yeah, it's, it's sort of coming up. You know, um, and and maybe we won't see it, but yeah, you know, it, it will happen. But it, it was a sort of 
you know, a, a sense that it because after after only so many generations of not having opportunity, there there will be people say, well, let's, what's the point in even engaging with this system? Um, so so I do think we're close to that. I have to say, and it frightens me in some ways because I do think we're at a very volatile period in our in our in our lives in society, and and it's because. Uh, we're not we're not we're not dealing with these fundamental issues you know and and teachers of course are at the heart of this they're on the front line you know mm. they're, they're the ones that are trying all their best to sort of address these issues but but I feel it's all they, I think they feel like it's like sticking plaster almost in a society that's fundamentally um, uh, flawed but but uh, I, I'm sorry to get so big and profound no. but I, do, I, I do think it's that big I do and, and, and it's uh, it, it is very troubling and and one of the and one thing that teachers always experience is that as society encounters very big very intractable problems they'll often be focused on schools so they'll so schools will be expected to somehow deal with this whether it's extremism or whether it's uh, lack of skills or whatever thing that society is somehow lacking a school will become the focus where that can be put right, and it's it's a pressure that um, is is just impossible for skills to for schools to fulfil. Yeah, yeah, I think schools are, are at the epicentre of this storm in some ways. Yes, 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 that's a good. I think that's that's absolutely true. And if we were to think boldly and outside of the box, and we said things like, "Well, your place in secondary school can be allocated by lot, and your place at university." won't be determined by the ability of your parents to do whatever you're that will be to some extent by lot you'll have to achieve certain levels of academic ability that would be hugely politically unpopular mm. and yet it might produce a much fairer society yeah i mean we've proposed lotteries for both school and university missions in the past and and the politicians don't like it i mean it's the one one thing that we we thought would actually break that sort of middle class strangle hold on places um, and I think you've got to just find some ways of levelling that. I mean, I mean, there's two, there's, there's sort of parallel debates going on here, isn't there? In some, in some senses, our conversation has been about the system itself and how that needs changing. But within the system, you've got to try and make the, the playing field fair. And, I, and in a way, my work straddles those those two things. The other big thing I'm doing at the moment is, is, is getting undergraduates to volunteer to be tutors Mm -hmm. uh, in school, in schools. Now, there's been a, a bit of an issue with the natural tutoring program, which I was one of the one of the advocates for, and it's been terribly done in many ways. But but I'm really excited by this program because teachers are helping us train these tutors. It's it's in foundational literacy, so it's a very specific area early in, early in secondary schools, and we're getting undergraduates to to help teachers. I think there's a real um, opportunity there to get an army, if you like, if I can use that. <laughs> That language of, of undergraduates to help schools so, so that's very exciting to me but that's something that's within the current system you know and, and but, but in a way I'm, I'm sort of adopting a sort of pragmatic approach in many ways to try and make actually change happen mm. well that's 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 great Lee I think we've come to the end there now and the and it's uh that's a positive note to end on I, I know that it can it can seem especially uh, some of the things we've talked about can seem very difficult and very depressing, but I knew this was going to be an interesting discussion. It's absolutely fascinating, some of the things you've been talking about. I've been thinking about this all morning, and uh, social mobility is such a profound topic, and uh, thank you so much for joining the show. This is an absolutely brilliant. I've really enjoyed it. John, thank you very much. I could tell you did your homework and prep, which is always really good to see. So thank you, <laughs> and... Um, yeah, good luck with, with the rest of the, uh, of the show. And I, I hope I haven't depressed your listeners. I hope I've inspired them. <laughs> I, I feel inspired. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Well, that, that brings us to the end of the show. And I'm sorry if you tried to get in for a question. I'm not technically a bit difficult, uh, not too confident with some of that at the moment, everyone. So if you did try to get in with a question I, or try to join the show, I think if uh, Prince Botang, for instance, I think you may have tried to get in. I'm sorry. Do call again next week as I continue to explore what schools are for and what we've been doing each week as we get up in the morning and go to school. Please join me next week for another Friday morning break.
You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.